move into our time of worship uh, and our call to worship. Psalm 95. I'm going to read the first three verses. And if you don't have a Bible, you can listen as I read. Psalm 95, verse 1. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the Lord, to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. Let's pray. Oh, Father, this evening we come into your presence with thanksgiving. We praise you, Lord, for creating us, for sustaining us, Lord, for the beauty of weather and fall. Lord, for the joy and the hope of the Christmas season that is coming upon us soon. Lord, we thank you for the relative freedom we enjoy in our country. We thank you, Lord, for this church that you have established and preserved for many years now. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of your word. We thank you most of all for the gift of your son. We come into your presence this evening to rejoice in the hope of Christ, who has died for us, who lives again, and who... Uh, provides for us the hope of forgiveness, righteousness, peace, Lord, true redemption, that all the sad things will come untrue. We pray, Lord, this evening that you will fill our hearts with thanksgiving for all the many wonders you have worked for us, that you will fill our hearts with joy, that we might sing and make a truly joyful noise to you, Lord, from hearts that have been transformed by the gospel. We pray, Lord, for the work of your spirit in our service this evening, not only lifting our affections for Christ, but teaching us the word, Lord. May you instruct us and lead us in the path of faithfulness, that we might not only see Christ as he is, but live for him in faith and obedience. We pray now, Lord, that you would receive honor and glory this evening. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I invite you to stand and sing with us.
For confession this evening, I'll be reading from Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 14. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. One of the absolutely stunning things about the incarnation of the Son of God is that it enabled Christ in a, a visceral and experiential kind of way to have compassion on us in our sin. As the text says here, Christ is not a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but he is one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And the word sympathize here means to have compassion, to pity, to suffer with. It's the same word that's used elsewhere to refer to Christians who had compassion on those in prison, Christians who were moved with pity by the suffering of their brothers and sisters. That's the attitude, it says, that Christ has toward us. As our merciful and faithful high priest, Christ does not detest us in our weaknesses. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. He has compassion for us, not when we're doing well and we have it all together, but precisely when we're at our weakest and most undeserving. In fact, our weaknesses, which include our sins and failings, are the very things that elicit his compassion towards us. Just as any parent is moved with compassion by the suffering of their child, so Christ is moved with compassion at the struggling of his saints. And this, of course, doesn't mean that we give up in the struggle against sin. On the contrary, this is the fire that fuels repentance, which is why the next verse says, let us then with confidence, because our high priest is merciful, because he has compassion for us in our sin, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace and find grace to help in time of need. So as we confess our sins this evening, let's remember the tender mercy of our Savior, that he is not a high priest who is austere and far removed from us, who despises us in our many sins, but he is one who is intimately acquainted with all our failures and yet loves us just the same because of his abundant goodness. So let's go to him now and confess our sins this evening. Our Father in heaven, we come to you in Jesus' name. And we confess that we do not come before you this evening with clean hands or pure hearts. Uh, but Lord, we come with us bearing many sins and failings. Um, if we are honest, Lord, we, um, we have failed in countless ways. We have stumbled in many ways this week. We have not loved our neighbors as we ought to. We have not loved our God with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. We have not aimed at your glory in all things. Um, and instead, we have lived selfishly. We have made decisions according to what serves us. 
instead of what serves Christ. We have sought our own interests rather than the interests of others. And we just confess, Lord, that as your word says, the wages of sin is death. And that um, there is nothing that we could raise up to you that would be, that, that could leverage us into your, into your kindness. But we thank you that even as we confess these things to you, we are not confessing them to one who is um, cold or hardened to us. But as we have read in your word, uh, we confess our sins to a merciful and faithful high priest, one who has been tempted in every way as we are and yet without sin, and who is therefore able to sympathize with our weaknesses, and not only that, but to truly cleanse and save and to redeem us to save to the uttermost all who draw near to God through him. And so, Father, we confess that Christ is our hope. Christ is our life. Christ is our, our joy and our salvation. And we ask that you would please turn our hearts to Christ now. And we ask that as we consider his goodness and his compassion towards us, that this would fuel um, our faith and that it would overflow in obedience, that it would overflow in repentance, that we would turn from our sins and forsake them and seek to, to please you through our Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask these things now in his name. Amen. At this time, we'll take up the offering and I'll invite the ushers forward. Those who have been forgiven much love much. And this point in our service is an opportunity to remember that and to show that love in response to the mercy that we've received. And so as we give this morning, let's remember the grace that we have been given in Christ. And let's give with joyful hearts. I'll pray and then the ushers will pass this around. Father in heaven, you are the God who created the heavens and the earth. Your kingdom is in the heavens and you rule over all. There is not one square inch of all of creation that does not belong to you and will not one day bow to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we uh, pray that you would help us now to give in view of these things, that we would give out of a joyful desire to see the name of Christ magnified. And we pray that you would use uh, what we give as means to that end. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.
Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this evening um, needing our hearts to be tuned. We come with uh, distractions and fears and anxieties and unbelief. It's like a, a, a noise in our hearts and our minds that prevents us from praying with an open heart. We learned last week that we should approach you and your word and life with careful and sober consideration. And we confess, Lord, often we come into your presence not with this careful consideration, but with um, untuned hearts and distracted hearts. We pray, Holy Spirit, this evening that you would revive us that you would restore us, that you would purify our hearts and bring back the joy of our salvation. Lord, we thank you that the truth of your word is not dependent on our feelings that are like shifting sands, that it is fixed, firm, that it will never change. We thank you for the confidence that we can have in it. And we pray that um, we would not be like, as James says, a, a wind of the, uh, a wave of the sea that is tossed and turned, but that we would be fixed, our hearts would be fixed on your word, and that we would seek to bring ourselves into conformity to the word and, and to Christ. We would no longer be conformed to the sinful patterns of this world. We would be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We thank you for the privilege of coming this evening to hear your word. And we pray that the word would, would come as rain on our, on our hard hearts, that you would soften the soil, that you would um, help us to see our sin so that we may confess it. Help us to see the, the treasure of Christ presented, laid out for us once again, so that we would not be led astray by the false treasures of this world. I pray that we would see the, uh, the greatness and the majesty, as we read here, of, of the great triune God, um, that he is high and lifted up and, and, and splendid in his holiness. And yet also, as we heard earlier, a God who uh, is not far from each one of us. And only you can hold these in perfect tension. We thank you for your church, Lord. And we come to you this evening as a needy people. And there are many needs represented here uh, this evening. And you know each of them. There are sad hearts and proud hearts and grieving hearts. 
there are healthy bodies and struggling bodies. There is a bright and fervent faith and a cooling and backsliding faith. Um, we pray that you would minister specifically as only you can. As the word is taught this evening, that it would come with power and conviction. Uh, that we would not leave this place unchanged and unmoved. Um, Lord, we pray that you would, um, yeah, just fill us with hope in these days where the, uh, the temptation to be discouraged and despair is often with us. Uh, and this often happens when people are big and, and God is small. So we pray that you would restore to us a right assessment of reality, a right awareness of the truth of the way the world is, that it is not spinning uncontrolled or controlled just by tyrants, Lord, but you hold all the hearts in your hand and you lead them as you will, like a river. I pray that we would rather be confident and rest in your providence and your good care for all things. And I pray that as we um, are assured and confident in this hope that we would live uh, obedient lives, that we would, um, in our words, in our actions, we would adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ and not bring shame to his name. So we pray, Lord, we lift up this service to you. We lift up our, our church to you, our lives. We thank you for the uh, the event, the transaction of the cross, where we who were once far away and, and dead in our sin have been restored and made alive. I pray that we would rejoice in the truth of this this evening. You would receive the praise and the glory. We pray in your name. Amen.
you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to the book of Proverbs, chapter 4, Proverbs chapter 4, and I'm going to be reading verses 20 to 27. This is the conclusion of our um, kind of mini-series, our giving attention to uh, the exhortation to guard our heart with all vigilance. Proverbs 4.20, My son, be attentive to my words and incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, which is truth. We pray that you would sanctify us by the truth. For Jesus' sake, amen. Last week, we considered the word ponder, which means to give careful consideration. And we considered the idea that the Christian life is to be one that is characterized by contemplation by giving careful consideration to God and to the words that we say and to the thoughts that we think and to the feelings that we feel and everything. Christians ought to be characterized by careful consideration in contrast to the fool who gives no thought and simply does. And we looked at the idea that our age of folly is increasingly characterized by reaction. We were to characterize most of the discourse and most of the behaviors that we see in the world around us today, or at least a lot of them, they, we could describe them as reactionary, uh, as the impulses unrestrained, uh, impulses of people totally unrestrained. But this week, I want to consider uh, again what it means to guard our heart with all vigilance. Um, with a bit more emphasis on the practical nature of these things. If the Christian life requires careful consideration, then we must know what to consider. Indeed, one of the most crucial tasks to living the contemplative life is knowing how to prioritize our gaze. In a sea of noise, we must know where to direct our eyes and our ears. If we are to guard our hearts with all vigilance, then we must develop the discipline of focused attention in a world of distraction. And this is what the father is driving home to his son. He's saying, pay attention. This is where you direct your eyes. This is where you direct your ears. We must be able to raise the volume on God's voice and lower the volume on all others, including our own. 
We guard our hearts by guiding our eyes and ears to his word and putting away words that deviate from his. This is essentially the father's point to his son. We guard our hearts by guiding our eyes and ears to his word and putting away words that deviate from his. I'm going to make three points based on this. I'm going to consider what it means to guide our eyes and ears to God's word. I'm going to consider what it means to guide our hearts to Jesus Christ. And lastly, what it means to guard our words in accordance with his. So to begin, we guide our eyes and ears to God's word. My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my saying. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart. Again, the way that we guard our heart is not mystical. It's very practical. It is by directing the attention of our eyes and our ears to a source, namely God and his word. There are, as you know, a thousand voices vying at every moment, it feels like, for our attention. Vying for our eyes, vying for our ears. You remember when, in order to get your attention, people put up billboards, right? And they were, I'm assuming, an effective form of advertisement because people spent money doing it. And, I mean, we put up a billboard recently. It says, Christ is Lord, and that's pretty cool. Uh, I don't know how many people are using billboards anymore. I remember when we drove into Chicago for a conference one time. You're driving along the highway, and the U.S. has so many billboards. They're like the billboard capital. You know, it's a, it's a, I'm like, who even looks at these? I'm just wondering who actually looks at that billboard and follows through on that. But people apparently at one point did. In other words, they are trying to get your attention in that moment, that very brief moment they have, Produce some kind of behavior. Produce some kind of result in you. But we don't live in a world anymore, I I wish we did, where the loudest voices for our attention are billboards. Uh, Externally, I mean, we live in a world that is absolutely overrun with voices. I shared last week about one of the things I miss about my own childhood is the fact that I was bored. Uh, The vast majority of my childhood in the country was just being bored. You know, it's like you're going to do one thing today and you'll probably do that same thing the next day kind of thing. But we don't really live in this that world anymore. We face a temptation to give an inordinate attention to the words around us, social media, peers, co-workers. And we face the temptation, even if we could, you know, bug out and and go off grid, we would still face the temptation to retreat inward to the voice that we are most familiar with, namely our own. But these voices cannot be trusted to lead us along the right path. None of these voices sustain. None of them give life. The voice that we need to fight to give attention to is the voice of our Father. And we hear that in His Word. Notice the connection in the text between the eyes and the ears 
and the heart. The admonition to incline one's ear and focus their sight on the Father's word, their hearing on the Father's word, and their admonition to keep their sight there, and the admonition to keep them within your heart all follows. We can think of this in terms of a common phrase, that the eyes are the window into one's soul. We might say the eyes and the ears are the doorway into one's heart. That's what a biblical anthropology assumes. Just as food nourishes the stomach, the words of God sustain the heart. Jesus built on this. He um, confirmed this. He says, it is written in response to Satan's temptation. He responds with God's word. He says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. What I need most is not bread, but God's word. And in this, he was quoting Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, which we read, And he humbled you, that is, God humbled Israel, and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. The point that Jesus was making that he was trying to teach Israel and their wanderings, is that there is a kind of nourishment that is necessary for life, and it isn't food. It's God's word. More than you need food, you need God's word. This is why the father says to his son, life are for those who find them, and healing to all their flesh. And there's nothing more precious than life. God's word is what creates life, we read in Genesis 1, and sustains life, Hebrews 1, verse 3. The father's exhortation to his son is simply this. Direct your eyes and direct your ears to the place where you will find life, and that is in my word. Where have we been looking for life? Or, that's a little... Uh, Theoretical, another practical way we might say this is what exactly do we think we need? Maybe that's a better way of saying it. Are we like Israel who was content with manna? Would we be satisfied if we were just able to get by? Or do we realize that you can gain the entire world and forfeit your soul? Do we realize that life does not consist in the abundance of possessions? Luke 12, 15. Everything that we receive comes from above, James 1, 17. Therefore, our food and our family and our friends and our shelter and our clothing and everything that we have is meant to point us towards the giver who is God. And this reminds us that these gifts are not ultimate. They themselves are not Life, but they come from the one who is. What exactly do we think that it is that we need? Is it the gifts or is it the giver? And the answer is we need the giver. And in order to know the giver, we need to know his word. 
In order to know the giver of life, we need to know the words of life. So this is why there ought to be a hierarchy to what we focus our attention on. There are many things in life that are good things to focus on. This isn't a line between good things and bad things. The most important distinction we need to make is between good and best. Between permissible and necessary. There are many good words that we can listen to and many good things that we can see. But there is nothing as ultimate or as necessary as God's word. God's word is necessary not only for giving life, but for giving faith. We cannot even exercise faith apart from God's word because faith is a response to God's word. We read in Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing. So you hear and then you believe. But where does the hearing come from? The hearing comes through the word of Christ. In other words, the word of God is this strange and unique thing that actually produces the hunger. That apart from God's spirit working through his word, you don't even know that you need that nourishment. And God, the word of Christ comes to bear on people and the spirit opens their hearts to receive it. And all of a sudden you have an appetite for something you never knew you needed. And that's what faith is. The difference between believing and not believing is not just those who hear, but those who receive, those who hunger and thirst, the Bible says. Both initial faith and ongoing faith are sustained by seeing and hearing the word of Christ. Faith, unlike our contemporary culture, presents itself as not an internal quality that is manufactured by ourselves. I mean, at one level, we could say that. If faith, you just mean a general sense of trust. Sure, you know, put, put your faith in your vehicle to drive straight. Put your faith in your spouse to be faithful. You know, like if you just mean it's synonymous with the word trust in a general sense, yes, human beings have a capacity for trust to some degree. But in the Bible, the kind of faith that is required as an evidence that is belief is not possible on our own. We'll look at that later. And the way that faith is produced in us is through the word of Christ. And this is at the beginning, and this is the ongoing part of our life. You don't just eat one meal for the rest of your life. You need ongoing nourishment day by day, even more so with God's word. And the less you think you need it, the less you want it. And the more you realize you need it, the more you want it. And the more you see it, and the more you hear it, the more you realize you need it. And then you see it, and then you hear it, and then you need it. Then you see it, then you hear it, and you need it. And it's this cycle of um, continuously developing an appetite for God. God's word not only produces faith in us, but God's word guards us from sin. Our primary weapon against unbelief is the word of God. King David wrote, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Psalm 119, 
11. Paul tells Timothy to give himself to the public reading of Scripture. And you know why he gave himself to this? Because no one had the Bible. So the only way that Christians would ever hear the Scriptures is when they were read in the synagogue, when they were read publicly to them. And they would listen, and they would receive it, and they would meditate upon it. That's why Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Proclaim it publicly. Share it privately amongst you. Store up God's word in your heart. This is the practice of memorization. This is a, an art that we have long since, and a capacity that most of us have given up on. If we say that every culture kind of has their ditches or their roadblocks to Christianity, one of ours is our distractedness and our inability to meditate, to store up. Uh, the, the, you know, if you read Little House on the Prairie, what is, what is she doing in school? She's preparing for her recitations. You know what that means? She's memorizing things. And then she's reciting them. And human beings have an enormous capacity for recitation. And one of the things we're trying to recover as a school is, is memorization. So from kindergarten all the way up, you know, we begin them with memorizing songs and scriptures and things that are, you know, they have a rhythm to them and they're easy and it works up to more and more complicated. And kids can actually do this. And my point is not to make a case for, you know, an elite education. It's to say that there is a capacity that we, he we need to have in order to guard our hearts that many of us, including myself, are lacking. And that is the discipline to focus our attention enough that we can receive God's word and store it up and memorize it. And I don't know if you've had this feeling where um, whether you hear of a tragedy or you're going into a conversation or there's a people's train wreck, and you wish, you just wish you had a scripture. You just wish you had that word. You wish you didn't have to look for it. Or, or in the moment of temptation, you just wish you had something better, something to, something to throw open the curtains. And that's what God's word does. God's word throws open the curtains and lets the light shine on sin, and it just loses all of its power. So much of our um, sin is owing to the fact that we just don't have God's word stored up in our hearts. That when we're on our job, when we're in our work, uh, whatever it is, what are we thinking about? What are we repeating over and over and over? If it's what we're anxious about, if it's what we're stressed about, if what we're hurt over, it's what we're angry about, this is not a good thing. And, and I know I'm prone to this as well. Is that we, we, we have to... You know, as one man said, every glance at ourselves have ten glances at Christ. And we do that in his word. It's like, okay, something difficult happened with work. You had a, a run-in with a coworker. You had a difficult situation. Something in your marriage. Okay, identify it. Say it. Now go to scripture. And now read some scriptures and go over those all week. That's what you need to be thinking about. Not stewing on this. Not worrying about this. That doesn't help. There's no salvation in here. There's no hope in here. There's no solution within. There's no amount of thinking about things that's going to uh, help the situation. It's meditating on God's word. So God's word not only grants but sustains faith. God's word guards us from sin. Practically, we need to be thinking about this. What is it that we are seeing and hearing? This is, this is very practical. 
there is a view that some people have that has, um, you know, probably always been in the world that avoiding seeing and hearing certain things is prudish, legalistic, dogmatic, etc. In other words, if we are going to prioritize what we see and prioritize what we hear, we are necessarily going to have to exclude things. Because we are creatures, we are limited, we are finite, we can't see everything, we can't hear any everything. So if we are going to prioritize God's word, that means there are going to be other things that we are just not going to see. We're not going to hear, we're not going to look at, we're not going to listen to. And as soon as we hear that, as soon as we do that, there's a certain kind of person who says that's legalistic, prudish, dogmatic, etc. Now, we must reject an ascetic view of life that thinks that our external avoidance of certain things, that alone is godliness. Paul crushes this in Colossians. He says, if you have died with Christ, you have died to the elemental spirits of the world. Why, as if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence to the flesh. Uh, there are many people who grew up avoiding certain music and entertainment who went off the rails when they grew up. But that's not because guarding what you see and hear is wrong. It's because it's not sufficient. We need to be seeing and hearing Christ, not just avoiding sin and error. Asceticism is saying, if I just avoid all these things, I'm good. And it's just another way of getting away from Jesus. And it's another way of getting away from Jesus that looks like you're running towards him. Because you're very, very serious, but it's avoiding him. The fact remains, we are to be intentional, however, about what we see and what we hear. As we'll get to, we avoid what is corrupting, and we fight to see and hear what is life-giving. Of course, this doesn't mean we avoid seeing and hearing sinners. We can't be faithful to the Savior and avoid sinners. Jesus reclined at table, we read in Matthew 9.10, in the house, and behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came to call the righteous, not the righteous, but sinners." Directing our gaze to Jesus Christ does not mean that we avoid hanging out with sinners because we are sinners. And we cannot say that we identify with the Savior of the world if we have no concern for the lost. So there's sometimes quick, there's, there's, there's moralistic messages that are given around this principle sometimes that give the impression that if I just simply avoid secular music and the, the media and stay out social media, I'm good. But that's not the father's exhortation to the son. He's telling him to be intentional about where he guides his gaze. To guard one's heart with all vigilance is to store up God's word in our hearts. It is to direct our attention to God's word, to prioritize his voice and to see of voices to silence even the voice within with the voice 
from above. And to truly see and hear God's word is to see and hear Jesus Christ. Which brings me to my second point, guiding our hearts to Christ. The father tells the son that these words are life to those who find him, them, and healing to all their flesh. Jesus Christ in scripture is the word of the father. To see and hear God's word is to receive Jesus Christ by faith. The purpose of directing our eyes and our ears is devotional. And this is what the ascetic person doesn't understand. By just retreating and removing and avoiding all things, you miss the entire point, which is devotional and personal. Christianity is about Christ. And as much as we try to explain against the worldly philosophies and ideologies how Christ applies, he is not an ideology. And he is not a philosophy. He is a person. This week I read an article about a very um, well-known intellectual, this woman who came out of, I believe, North Africa. And the Muslim Brotherhood took over her village when she was a teenager, and therefore everyone converted to Islam. And she has been speaking the last couple of years as a refugee living in Holland. She might be a citizen. Um, about the dangers of the Islamic worldview as someone who lived in it. And she wrote an article about how she is converted to Christianity now. She was an atheist. She, she left Islam and she was an atheist. And now she is publicly converted to Christianity. And I read this article with great interest because this woman is a very wise woman, has made very good observations about the world. Um, she's been an important voice in the public conversation. And the reason that she gives, and I'm thankful for the direction she's moving in. I don't mean to come across as critical unnecessarily. But the reason, as far as I understand it, that she gave is because when she looks out at the world and she sees the encroachment of Islam and radical secularism, she realizes that, um, one, the problems with the world are fundamentally religious. So her atheism can't stand. Because the deepest problems in the world that she has been diagnosing come down to a religious root. Even secularism is a religion. And she realizes that Christianity is a religion, is responsible for the fruit of what she has come to love and enjoy, appreciate, coming out of the darkness of that worldview. She loves the rule of law instead of mob rule. She loves um, human rights and dignity. She loves a lot of good things that we have inherited in the West. And she recognizes that these are ultimately owing to Christianity. And I would amen everything she said. There was nothing in her article that I would say that was wrong. But I got to the end of the article. And her conversion to Christianity said nothing of her conversion to Christ. And even even now thinking of it, I just, it's sad. And I hope she just left that out, or I hope that was an editor's decision. Um, This wasn't a Christian publication. Uh, And she's attending church, she says, and I hope she's attending a church where they preach the gospel. But taking Christianity as a philosophy, as a governing civic idea, is absolutely useless and won't be sustained. 
Because the point of Christianity is Jesus Christ. And the point of seeing and hearing God's word is to see and hear and receive Jesus Christ. That's the point. That's the point of the Bible. One startling claim in this text is, is the Father's claim that life is found in the receiving of the Father's words. How can this be? This is the case because God's word, which is the substance of the Father's instruction, points us to the living word, Jesus Christ, who gives life. One of the extraordinary claims of the Bible is that Jesus Christ does not just give God's words. Muslims believe that Jesus was a prophet. The startling and the controversial claim is that he is God's word. In the beginning, we read in John 1, was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made in him was life, and the life was the light of man. Why can the Father say, hold fast to my words, for in them is life? Because those words are God's word, which point to the living word, Jesus Christ. And in him is life. There is no life in Christianity as a philosophical system. There is no life in Christianity merely as a civil governing system. Structure. There's no life. There's life in Christ. It's not sufficient enough even to hear or see God's words merely with our ears and eyes. He goes on to say in verse 11, He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. But they heard Him, and they saw Him. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. To receive Jesus Christ, according to John, is to believe in his name. So to truly see and to hear the Father's word is to receive it with faith. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 14. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. This is what the Father in Proverbs means by the exhortation to His Son, to be attentive to my words, to incline your heart to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find Him and healing for their flesh. The kind of seeing and hearing that the Father is after is the seeing and hearing of faith. The people who crucified Jesus saw him and heard him, but they did not believe. Demons saw and heard. The kind of seeing and kind of hearing we must have of God's words is not a mere listening but it's a listening with faith. It is not a mere looking, but it's a looking with faith. Are we seeing and hearing God's word with faith? 
just as there were many who saw Jesus Christ walk this earth and heard his very words and yet did not believe, so there are many even today who see and hear and who do not believe. The exhortation here is for us. When we sit here and we hear the preaching of God's word, we listen to the reading of God's word, when we have the privilege of having this book contain the written words of God, are we not only seeing it, are we not only hearing it, but are we receiving it? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, Jesus said. Brothers and sisters, we have something more precious than anything. It's the Word of God. And it's, the reason it's more precious than anything is because it reveals someone more precious than anyone. And we need to not move past and ignore and listen and forget, but to see and hear and receive him. The litmus test of whether or not we are guiding our eyes to see and our ears to hear with faith in Christ is what comes out of our mouth. This is my last point, to guard our mouths. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or the left. Turn your foot away from evil. What goes into the heart comes out of the heart, very simply. Either we are seeing and hearing God's word and receiving it with faith, and what comes out is good fruit. Or even if we are seeing and hearing, it's not worth faith, and what comes out is bad fruit. A quote attributed to Orwell states, In a time of universal deceit, telling the truth becomes a revolutionary act. And I can say with certainty that we live in a time of universal deceit. And one of the characteristics is it is defined by corrupting and devious speech, lying words everywhere. I actually still remember a time where you could trust the news. And I don't mean that in a partisan sense. I don't mean that as a unnecessarily divisive. It's just increasingly people just don't tell the truth. They say part truths, maybe. They don't give an accurate picture of things. It's a distortion of reality. It's what the Bible calls corrupting and devious speech. The term crooked and devious, these terms imply that there is a direction our speech must be aimed at. And there's a kind of speech that deviates from that aim. Notice, coupled with this, is the positive exhortation to direct our eyes directly forward and our gaze straight before you. So the way that we ought to go is straight, but there's a kind of speech which deviates, which is crooked, which doesn't stay on the narrow way. Notice that... Um, or crooked and devious speech, then, is that which sends us or others off the straight path. It is speech that does not reflect the truth of Christ. It is speech that does not encourage others in the right way to him. Notice that this is a broader term than simply saying vulgar or crude speech. So it's not enough to say just don't curse or don't use filthy language. That's not what he's talking about. It encompasses that, but it's much more. This 
speech is speech that is fundamentally off, we could say. And the reason that this speech is off is because our hearts are off. And the reason our hearts are off is because we're not seeing and we're not hearing with faith. And therefore, what comes out of our mouth does not line up with Scripture. I've said this before about people. I said they just don't sound like the Bible. I could, I could critique them at a variety of points. I could point out their assertions and show how they don't line up. But sometimes, by way of shorthand, I'm talking to my wife and I'm just saying, it just, it just bears no resemblance to Scripture. It just doesn't sound like Scripture. It's just off. The direction of this speech is not leading me towards Jesus Christ. It's not leading me to love others in his name. It's leading me away from that. It's leading me to me. And that's crooked. And that's devious. Paul has a similar exhortation in the letter to the church in Ephesus. In chapter 4, verse 29, but his letter to the Ephesians. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as good for building up. So our speech can either corrupt or it can build up. As fits the occasion. This is a key. I'm not going to go into it, but a theology of speech needs to recognize what is fitting for the occasion. People make speech laws. They say, you can never say this, you should always say this, and both of those things are wrong. The Bible includes every kind of speech there is. There is no kind of speech that is never right, and there's no kind of speech that is always right. Think about that. As fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. These are kinds of speech. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Corrupting talk, according to Paul, is antithetical to the kindness and the tenderheartedness that God has shown us in Jesus Christ. If we find our speech characterized by bitterness, anger, gossip, slander, we can be sure that our hearts have wandered for, from Christ. And if our words are seasoned with malice, meant to justify ourselves by tearing others down, that we have wandered from the tender-hearted mercies of our forgiving Savior. The antidote to malicious words is the living word who died for the forgiveness of those who slandered him. What goes in will come out. Either we are seeing and hearing and being satisfied with Jesus Christ or we are not. And time and our words will tell, will tell instead of this kind of speech, this corrupting speech, this devious speech. Our words ought to be a reflection of Christ. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. Those who guide their eyes to see Jesus Christ and their ears to hear Jesus Christ guard their words to share Jesus Christ, to rejoice in Jesus Christ, to give thanks to Jesus Christ. These are the words that we ought to speak.
Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us to see and to hear. To see and to hear your voice, to see and to hear your son, to receive him with faith. We pray that you would forgive us for our lack of need. Would you produce a hunger in us? We thank you that you are kind and tender-hearted. where we have wandered far from home. You will gladly welcome us upon our return. So, good Lord, we give you thanks for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take the Lord's Supper.